Hi everyone, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to our podcast Books and Beyond with Bound season 4 where we speak to some of the finest writers in India to find out what makes them tick. Yes, and we are editors, podcasters and storytellers and through Bound we help you create stories and put them out into the world. I can't wait to talk to our guest today because as you guys know I'm a big foodie. Yes, we are speaking to Krish Ashok, the author of Masala Lab. I just love how he's managed to demystify the secrets of desi cooking through science. I mean, especially you know the book begins with an Indian pressure cooker and the myths surrounded around it and I just loved the way it began. Yeah, there's so many interesting little science experiments and little nuggets of joy that you'll find when you're reading this book. And in the interview, I really wanted to explore how he went about researching his book because it's very research-heavy, and he spoke to many different people from food scientists because this is a book that talks about uh, food through science. It's a very science-heavy book. Uh, two of my favorite kinds of people, grandmoms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, we'll actually be speaking. about food writing i mean what makes food writing sizzle right like how do you make the reader salivate just through your words it's it's you know for example how do you use phrases like melting butter on a pan so there's so much to learn from him yeah melting butter on a pan with a crispy toast and a nice grilled <laughs> cheese and the cheese pulls apart oh, wow. yum <laughs> Yeah. But before that, let let me let's let's remind you that if you are a bookworm, writer, podcaster, storyteller, basically anyone who creates who loves stories, then join our community of creatives. We have two WhatsApp groups. One is for writers and readers and the other one is for podcast lovers. So we have a lot of resources, fun conversations happening on those groups. Um so you would not want to miss out on that and we put the links in the show notes. So let's dive in and find out Krish's secret science to food. Hi Krish, welcome. Very happy to speak to you today. Hi Krish, welcome. Hey, hi, hi Tara. Okay, so this episode is going to be a lot of fun because we haven't covered food before and it'll have four sections. So the first one will explore your journey with food writing and we'll also talk about your book Masala Lab. The second section is all about books. We have a special reading recommendation section. The third one will focus on Indian food and the common misconceptions about it and this is going to be a very special section because we haven't done something like this before. And the fourth one will be our signature rapid fire round. So can't wait to begin the conversation, uh, Krish. Super. Looking forward to it. So the first question that we had for you is that uh, you know, you're a software scientist as you've written in the book, but um you know we couldn't find what make food writing in particular so palatable to you so so this is uh, so i've always been uh, uh someone who wrote played music um and did a lot of art um ever since i was young i mean i've been playing the violin for almost since i was 7 and so on so i've always been into the arts i've always been into writing i've been you know writing during college and then you know writing newspaper columns and so on so writing was always a thing uh and particularly i think science communication was always something that i loved doing so a lot of my writing prior to writing this book was also largely at the intersection of humor and uh, you know communicating science in accessible ways and so on right uh, and it just so happened that uh, uh, cooking is just one of those things that uh, i've been doing since i was uh, i guess a late teenager uh, my mother sort of taught me to cook uh, at the first moment she trusted that i would not blow up the kitchen <laughs> in an lpg explosion so um it is just that over time as i as i lived abroad i lived about 7 or 8 years uh, abroad and so on uh that was when i cooked daily and i it kind of struck me that uh my my engineering and sort of sort of software mindset told me that there was uh, something sort of lacking about the way we represented cooking knowledge in the sense that we ended up representing a lot of it purely as recipes uh, which tend to be sort of moments in time uh way of representing a particular dish it doesn't really capture the reality of day to day cooking which is that you make do with what you have you adjust as you go along you you experiment constantly and you you essentially localize uh, based on whatever ingredients are available and recipes often don't capture that that side of uh, cooking and also give you a false sense of the fact that everything has to be precise and you need exactly this and so on when in reality it's 
um, the best cooks, you know, my grandmothers and others that I know in the family were all people who, who, who considered cooking a craft, meaning that they had some standard heuristics. They said, look, I know when the rice is cooked, not by saying that I put a one is to two you know, water ratio, but I know when it's cooked because I know when the water reaches this level, I know the starch is gelatinized. So they may not know the scientific reason, but a lot of their heuristics have been passed down over time. And that kind of practical vocational knowledge has never been documented, right? Uh, and so it seemed like the perfect opportunity at the start of the pandemic when you know people were uh, increasingly interested in cooking uh, to write something like that. And nothing had been written in this space before. And it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to do. Yeah, and that's, uh, I like that, you know, you're always a creator um, because I was also fascinated to know there's so many, and you do do this, so many other ways to convey what you're trying to, uh, but you chose the form of a book. So why why was the form of a book so interesting to you? So interestingly enough, I resisted the book format uh, for, for most of my, uh, uh, for most of, uh, for a long time, actually. Um, so I sort of started blogging um, very early in the day. Um, and this was at a time when a lot of people in Chennai and Bangalore were early adopters of the internet in India because of the tech industries sort of early rise in this part of the world. Uh, and so, uh, and this early optimism about the internet and technology in general, and as someone who is into technology, uh, essentially made me somewhat of a, uh, if you will, uh, I was sort of arrogantly sort of biased against books for most of my life, meaning that, well, I loved reading them, uh, but I always felt that the publishing industry per se was dead. And that, you know, the idea of turning dead trees into paper was a thing of the past and everything was going to be interactive. Everything was going to be a tablet or an app or a, or video or, or augmented or virtual reality. And that the written word per se is, is not really going to be important was, uh, was my, if you will, ignorant uh, way of predicting the future, if you will, a decade ago. Um, and so for the most part, I resisted uh, uh, really just putting my head down and saying, fine, let me write a book and so on. So I, I tried, I did everything else. I, you know, I blogged, I, sort of uh, built a social media audience. I started creating videos. I made music. Uh, I did everything except actually write a book. Uh, then I think the last five years has obviously uh, changed uh, my ideas a lot. And I think I'm a lot less enamored by technology uh, as I was before. And, I, and over time, I've also recognized that I think the printed page is is possibly the, the greatest knowledge management uh, you know, if you will, platform uh, of that mankind is produced. And this includes the internet, this includes many other things. And there's something about uh, words on a page, particularly long form writing, uh, which I think teaches uh, and communicates both fiction and nonfiction uh, in a way that a video or a film or, or just music simply cannot. Um, and I started recognizing that there is value uh, in being able to write 65 or 60, 70,000 words uh, and that's when, uh, you know, Penguin had been approaching me for almost the last five, six years. And then I finally said, fine, okay, I'm ready to write. So what do you want me to write? Uh, and uh, my first proposal was to write a steampunk uh, set of science fiction, humorous uh, short uh, short stories set in South India. Uh, then Penguin said, well, you know, fiction doesn't do very well when people are shopping at home. Uh, so you might want to consider something nonfiction because I think, you know, better chance of selling and so on. So I said, fine, let me write nonfiction. What can I write on? Uh, and it and it just turned out that the intersection of food and science just turned out to be uh, sort of like the thing that uh, was relatively easy for me to do because I'd been thinking along those lines for for the for the better part of the last decade and a half. So that's how you know I decided. Fine, you know, if I have to write a book, let me write it about food. <laughs> that's so cool, uh, Krish. Actually, because when you mentioned blogging, I immediately remembered how you know my journey into writing began, and blogging made it so easy for me. Actually, like it opened up a lot of opportunities. It made me see. Uh, how you can be yourself on a blog so it's really good to know that uh, you started blogging and then uh, you know you saw the value in the written words so- and also I, I couldn't agree more with you know what you said about writing being our greatest technology and many people don't actually think of it as a technology yeah, but it true. is one and it really it changed the you know the entire world when it was invented absolutely <laughs> absolutely i think that say the discovery of writing the discovery of the written word, uh, you know, back in the Sumerian times, to the printing press and the, the paperback, etc., uh, represents, in a sense, the the greatest uh, single single biggest civilizational shift uh, for mankind. That was my next question, uh, Krish. You know, because now with technology, basically people can reach out to anybody, like people who wouldn't have been accessible, like probably five right. years back, right? So you yes. must have spoken to several food scientists, right? As as a part of yes. your research for the book. So can you share a spicy anecdote of speaking to a food scientist? And, and what exactly does a food scientist do? 
so so it's interesting so food scientists for the most part uh, are not people you uh, generally uh, uh, most people are not aware of what they do right? uh, because uh, so in the sense that home cooking is largely something that is is more like a craft meaning that you there are certain standard set of heuristics you kind of learn from your mother grandmother and so on uh, and there are ways in which you can fix any problem something is you know, too sweet, you can adjust it with sourness and something is too sour, you can adjust with fat and, you know, you can do those kinds of things and so on. Um, but the moment you get into industrial food production or restaurant food production, and I think these are very, these are very different from home cooking, right? So in, in the context of uh, me being interested in food science, I wasn't actually interested in how uh, somebody makes cookies uh, or somebody makes potato chips in a factory or how yogurt is made. But I only was interested to the point of understanding what engineering tricks do they use that I can then adapt into the home kitchen? So my view was always the home kitchen. So in reality, I spoke to a lot more grandmothers than I spoke to food scientists. And in, in fact, in a lot of my talks, I often say that, well, you know, our, our grandmothers are food scientists in their own sense because they are constantly experimenting. They're learning from observational knowledge. They're using heuristics and ideas passed down from before and they're constantly validating it and updating it and so on. They are as much scientists, except that they've not like published a paper and so on. But the industrial food scientist uh, lives in a completely different world, right? So that person's job is to make sure that a factory is able to produce the same tasting potato chip or the same tasting uh, bhujia or, or the exact same sourness of yogurt uh, in every batch again and again and again, right? So in that sense, my interesting conversations were actually not with actual food scientists, but actually with really great cooks uh, who often had heuristics that they didn't know the reasons why. But then I would then take some of their reasons and then go, you know, read up on science and talk to food scientists and say, is this why this happens? Uh, and then apply that knowledge back in the context of home cooking. Right? So that's essentially how this entire uh, thing began. So No, that makes sense. And so much of what we think, because I love cooking, so I was very excited for this episode. And I consider myself completely an intuitive cook. So I have no idea. So for me, it was very eye-opening to see the science behind all of this stuff that's happening in front of you, which you're just sort of putting together by your own yeah. intuition. It reminds me, you know, of uh, how we have rituals and how those yeah. rituals can sometimes sort of, you know, we just go along with them, but sometimes they were invented for a particular reason, which we so sort yeah. of lost. Um but it was very interesting for me because I couldn't help think about the pandemic when I was reading your book because your book is all about smell and taste. And one of the most common symptoms of COVID was lack of smell and yes. taste. And we would all like every time any one of us got a cold, we'd like try and smell some coffee beans and see, you know. Uh, yes. And we know that you wrote this book in three months. So what was it like, you know, writing this book amidst the pandemic? And what was your routine? How did you bake this book? <laughs> so, so one of the, uh, thankfully, one of the things I had sort of done over the last uh, uh, decade almost is to take daily notes on my cooking experiments. Uh, and so essentially a lot of the things related to how much water should I add uh, to the dough, uh, you know, uh, to the floor when making chapati, for instance, right? And, and does it, by the way, change uh, based on whether it's a rainy season, when it's like really humid or the drier season uh, and so on. So there are times when the, when your atta will absorb more water depending on how much residual moisture is already there and so on, right? Uh, so thankfully, I had a lot of these notes uh, that just, just needed to be sort of summarized, if you will, right? So my problem was not so much writing 65,000 words as picking and choosing what to leave out. Uh, so, I mean, I think I had about 200,000 words ultimately in all of my notes. Uh, and then it was really a case of just picking up what I really wanted to make sure uh, would fit into a 250-page book because, you know, anything larger uh, is is a tough set uh, given how the marketing landscape of this works, right? And so, and uh, uh, and it's this is particularly interesting because it, it was also the early phase of the lockdown when we were all working from home and were largely isolating and the lockdowns were pretty strict. So in that sense, I think I was fortunate that I had the time and focus to be able to sort of get the whole thing out in a very short period of time. Uh, and then I think the uh, I actually ended up having COVID later in the year. Actually, around the time of the book release, I had COVID. Uh, and by the way, I lost my sense of smell for almost two and a half to three months. It took oh, it gosh. took a lot of time for it to come back. Um, and I mean, but it it wasn't like an on off switch, but it, it gradually, if you will, right? Um, 
And uh, but you know, my uh, other there are other people in my family for whom it hasn't come back hundred uh, percent, and so they're still so they're now doing things like smell therapy. You know, so there's this sort of exercise where you take different strong smelling things uh, and you keep smelling them uh, with your eyes blindfolded and try and guess what those aromas are because they uh, reaffirm some of those smell memories uh, and strengthen them, and they increase your ability to sort of you know detect them uh, and so on. Right. No, I. We can only imagine. Uh, you know how difficult it must have been. We have spoken to a lot of writers. Actually, you know, this our whole edition, um, of of our quarantine edition. We spoke to a lot of writers who've been, you know, struggling to to manage. I think a lot of things in the pandemic. But but what's the? I I would say the most um rewarding thing out of all is you know having written the book and that it's out there. So uh, you know, for all our listeners, um, Krish, you know, who love food and who maybe you know want to start writing about food. there are specific demands of certain genre so um it could be recipes it could be you know cultural essays about food so what according to you are the secret ingredients of food writing so i think you know uh by when i set out to write i very specifically wanted to write about food in a way uh that that hadn't been written before or hadn't been attempted before so i was like consciously looking at all the writing that existed so there is recipe writing uh there is uh, sort of uh, essays about tradition and and culture uh and so on and there's a sort of more history anthropology uh, side of that writing uh and all of these so one is very very academic and the other one is uh, most democratized right but literally anyone can write uh, start a recipe blog and there's like millions of food blogs um, and people on youtube and in fact uh, those were some of my sources of material uh and i'm actually doing the research uh for for writing this book and so on so um i i if if you really ask me i i think it's it's good to develop uh, a fresh and unique voice uh, that doesn't necessarily fit into any one of these neat categories um and i and i and i really think that uh, like for example uh, a lot of uh, food blogging tends to sort of uh, be restricted in terms of whatever search engine optimization you want to do in order to get attention um and then a lot of uh, columns food columns will often either impose some kind of a you know word limit if you will and they'll say no no don't get into the history just focus on the recipe or just focus on this uh, and so on so i i would actually i think i think there's an opportunity for a new generation of food writers uh, to be matter of fact about food and not kind of fall into those same orientalist tropes about indian cooking and i think that is particularly uh, at the second advice i'd have is is avoiding this uh, natural tendency to combine nutrition uh, with food writing in india somehow food and nutrition obviously not not surprisingly are very closely tied together and but everybody has an obsessive idea that somehow uh, even when you're making something like a deep fried thing like a puri people are still worried that the oil that i use will have an effect on my health they said boss you're deep frying something right this is not a healthy thing okay uh, this is it's literally like saying that i have medicinal herbs in my cigarette it doesn't matter do it in moderation you're going to eat uh, a puri you enjoy the puri and make it with the best tasting oil and the best tasting ingredients and eat it in moderation rather than worry about whether this this oil is cold pressed or not actually honestly you should be using cold press oil for deep frying in any case you know that's a separate conversation since sometimes you don't do uh, the right kind of service to the actual dish itself or to nutrition because the nutrition is mostly pseudoscience uh, and then therefore you know your actual the joy of cooking is is lost if you're only thinking about nutrition and so on so i think there's a middle ground for people to really find an approach where a little bit of just practical science tell them why it happens give people alternative uh, ways in which you cook because the recipe is a very limiting way to think about food uh, and that i think is is how i think you know a lot of food writing can evolve particularly in this part of it because that was one of the main questions that came up for me when i was reading this book you know uh, i noticed that uh, you the tone of the book is mostly neutral although you do caution us over you know wrong methods of cooking or storing masalas or better ways to do things but but you do not uh, pass any judgment on nutrition and for me that was sort of very jarring in a way because i'm so used to that kind of sort of uh, interaction with food writing especially since i'm a bit of a health obsessed kind of person uh, so could you you know tell us a little bit more about how does one separate these two things and why did you refrain from commenting about and why should one refrain from commenting about health and nutrition for example you know in the section on sugar <laughs> i was expecting something there uh, because it's all over the place you know how sugar is bad for you so yes so so as i said i think the uh, so first and foremost 
the day-to-day signs of flavor uh, and how to make sure that you're not burning something or how to get more aromatic food or more tasty food, etc., uh, is far more grounded in in verifiable science than literally 90% of all nutritional uh, knowledge. So that's the, the problem with the world of nutrition is that, uh, like for example, uh, you, there is there is no there is no no new book updated book on say Newton's laws because it's, it's it was done in the 16th century and we're good. I don't think it hasn't changed much, right? Barring Einstein's uh, sort of improvement of that. It's, it's settled science in that sense, okay? But there is a new fad diet literally every month. So if, if anything, people should know that the reason so much quackery exists is because the science is not settled yet. And, and the reason for that is that metabolism and digestion um, is one of the hardest to understand aspects of the human body, right? Doctors understand more about the human brain than they do about digestion. And, and, people, and people think that we understand everything. And the problem is that, for example, I grew up at a time when fats were supposed to be bad. So all our parents were skimping on fat, right? And particularly they were skimping on saturated fat. Uh, but apparently now that's okay, right? Coconut oil is now okay. Ghee is now okay, right? Now sugar and carbohydrates are the new enemy. Because the, the problem here is that a lot of the science is again based on not on enough data and the fact that everyone is so diverse. Everybody metabolizes food in their own way based on their lifestyles their you know, ability to exercise, not exercise, and so on. And more importantly, genetics. And genetics also, there are two things. Things that you directly inherit, you have no control over. And epigenetics, meaning a combination of genetics plus your lifestyle results in expression of certain traits uh, and so on. So there's a fascinating study that talked about how uh, children, in, particularly in South Asia, uh, children of mothers who, when they were young, suffered from malnutrition, which, by the way, in India is exceedingly common. Uh, if you're a small town, uh, uh, girls and so on, far more likely to be malnourished than boys are, right? Uh, and so once they, post-liberalization, uh, we all got, you know, people got wealthy and so on. And even uh, some of these women who gave birth to healthy children in very comfortable conditions, their children ended up being susceptible to type 2 diabetes because the way our genes express themselves is that if your mother suffered from malnutrition during her youth, a lot of her programming and the way the, the genes will fire inside her ovum, egg, and ultimately in the embryo and so on, all make you susceptible to type 2 diabetes because you are your body is wired to say that try and eat food whenever you can because there's, I, I can't believe that you know it's possible that you might be malnourished. So you are far more addicted to sugar. Even the slightest amount of sugar, therefore, will just completely set your body. And so the, the problem is that we are discovering these in just in the last five or six years, right? So... All of this essentially means that nutritional pseudoscience is, is exactly what it is. 90% of what you read about nutrition is likely to be proven false in the next couple of years. And that the knowledge is continuously updating itself. So I said consciously, I do not want to get into that at all. There is a, there is a way to think about food purely in terms of enjoyment. And only say one thing, saying that, you know, eat food, mostly plants, uh, and not too much. Right? That's about the only universal uh, nutritional advice that is not likely to be, you know, proven wrong, if you will. Yeah, I mean, eat in moderation, you know, but that's so scary because I'm just, you know, as I mentioned, I'm pretty much of a health person. So I have a, a number of endocrine disorders because of genetics and, and I can't do anything about it. So I sort of, you know, follow these trends sometimes. So now I'm eating a lot of ghee, like, you know, I've tried intermittent fasting and it is sort of, you do feel like you're on this treadmill. <laughs> That is never ending. Um, and so that's a very refreshing take on how to think about food and how to think about food writing. Yeah, and actually I'm the opposite, Tara. You know, I refrain from reading anything or any kind of prescriptive, uh, you know, advice to do with health and stuff because I know that I'll get paranoid because it doesn't stop anywhere, right? You just, it goes from one article to the other. And so my mother has gestational diabetes. So it's been like, uh, you know, basically my age. So it's 30 years. So it's always a worry that's at the back of my mind. But I don't really, um, I would say I'm not obsessed with food and health um, that way. And any kind of prescriptive nutritional advice is first and foremost nonsense. Because you can't, there is no one-size-fits-all nutritional advice. Every individual is unique, right? And, and by the way, for women, this is a double whammy because a significant portion of medical science over the last 200 years, the body of knowledge has been built only by studying men, right? Did you Absolutely. know, that, for instance, that you know, it, it, only in the last one decade or so do we know that when women suffer from heart attacks, 
their symptoms are different. They suffer from a pain in a different part of the body than men. But all heart attack textbooks for almost the last 100 years say that, oh, when you have a pain in your uh, in your arms or something is when you should be worried or your shoulder because that's an early sign of a cardiac arrest and so on. But that's not how it manifests in women. And, and by the way, uh, uh, intermittent fasting works differently on men and women. And by the way, it works differently across different races. It works differently depending on how much malnourishment you had as a child. And then on top of all of that, it depends on your genetics as well. The number of variables is just so huge that literally you can just simply safely ignore all advice other than the fact that try and eat what your grandmother ate um, and eat very little of it, as little as you possibly can. And I think you'll generally be fine. I think the wheels in my head are spinning now more than ever. You know, you've made me think in a new way. <laughs> so thank you. What I also wanted to explore was, you know, the structure of your book, uh, because, you know, I, I really liked how it began with pressure cooking. For me, that was a hook. Uh, growing up, I've always, uh, I've always been, I think, scared by the pressure cooker, always worrying, oh my God, it's going to burst. <laughs> I think it's a nightmare of every, um, you know, Indian child. So I wanted to know, how did you whip up this, um, you know, a really uh, approachable structure for your book? So actually, the the uh, uh, I I think the, I would actually say I spent about sixty uh, percent of the time that I took to write the book uh, in the in that introduction chapter and the first chapter uh, because I think I I knew that it was absolutely important to come out with a with a narrative arc uh, that made sense to people. So it had to start with where you typically start. It's about cooking rice or cooking some kind of you know starchy grain, and therefore pressure cookers tend to be involved. Uh, and so we had to sort of start there and then understand the physics of water to understand that and sort of take it in. And I also knew, you know, and, you know, my my copy editor at Penguin has also said that, look, we're all arts graduates. Uh, if you write any fancy science that uh, that only nerds can understand, this book won't sell. Right. So make it accessible. So make it like high school science. But even high school science, given that science is usually taught in such a terrible way, uh, try and try and keep it even more accessible. Try and teach it in ways uh, that that your school teachers may not have taught it, and so on. So I, I think we ended up rewriting a lot of the introduction and the first chapter till we till it sort of made sense. Then the rest of the chapters were relatively simple. So pressure cooking particularly is fascinating because uh, there's on the one hand uh, it is it is it is one a time and money saving device, right? In the sense that it uh, because you're cooking with liquid water at temperatures well above the boiling point of water, uh, you're able to cook food faster. And therefore, use less uh, cooking gas and cooking fuel. India has always been uh, a frugal, uh, short on resources nation, and so therefore, uh, something like pressure cooking was an absolute godsend when it came to actually. You know. But there's a second, more sociological angle to this as well. Uh, you will find that uh, in within India, and particularly within South Asia and Southeast Asia, rice-based cultures uh, tend to be uh, tend to have better. Uh, you know, sort of women right, women's rights and women's education and, you know, getting into the workforce uh, sort of a track record than cultures that are wheat-based, right? So you'll often find, uh, because rice allows you to one-shot uh, cook parallelly food for a large number of people. But a chapati is actually a very linear, exceedingly labor-intensive, uh, one-after-one, and it has to be served hot. Uh, and so generally women uh, in wheat-based households are literally cooking like morning to evening. Right. Uh, so therefore, it's not surprising that rice-based cultures are where women started working, women started, you know, uh, getting educated and so on. But then, then there's a third aspect to this in that. But it's because men were running all these appliance businesses and men doing the design of all of these things. Uh, India, for most of its living history, has had some of the worst design pressure cookers. We had sensor technologies that could have prevented any kind of explosion, any kind of fear of all of that, automatic cutoff, all of that could have been invented 20, 30 years ago. We had the technology for it. But it took someone, it took a Canadian inventor uh, uh, to come up with the instant pot, right? which now has become the default for pressure cookers. Now pressure cooking is not a problem at all because you just put it, shut it, and it'll just cook it, it'll keep it warm. Uh, and that device does like, you know, 20 other things. But for most of our life, we live with some of the most terribly designed appliances. These are appliances designed by men who never cook in India for women. Um, and so, the, you know, that's another interesting angle about the pressure cooker itself. Wow, I never thought about food and gender and culture like this. You know, I did not know that uh, how much food can impact. I mean, women working, uh, you know, in a rice-based community versus wheat. That's a little mind-blown. <laughs> It just reminds me of other products that have been, again, another topic, but designed by men like sanitary napkins, right? And now you have all oh, these yes. 
artisanal, yes. you know, independent companies that actually take in comfort uh, into consideration. But coming to, uh, you know, back to your book, uh, science and tradition seem like they're polar opposites. Uh, so how do you think that your book can slice through an audience that is steeped in tradition, say an older generation? Pretty early in the day, as I spoke to people who are great cooks, people like my grandmothers, people, you know, some restaurant chefs and so on, pretty early that a lot of things that they consider tradition and ritual uh, in the context of the kitchen, and this is exactly how you cook and this is how what happens. Vast majority of them uh, are actually based on scientific principles. They just don't know what it is. They may have the wrong reasons for it, but uh, but they cook delicious food. So the proof is in the pudding, if you will, right? Uh, and so that was, so we pretty early knew that if I take this approach that, oh, you know, all these old people don't know anything, science will come and explain everything. That kind of arrogance is simply not going to work. And it's actually, it's not even true, right? Uh, as I think uh, uh, Harold McKee, legendary, you know, food writer says that, you know, in the in the in the kitchen, it's the knowledge of cooking that matters. You know, food science is a nice to know thing, but uh, uh, you you can you can learn to cook without understanding a single word of science, right? So let's first appreciate that, which therefore means that a lot of the standard practices in terms of how we estimate water for rice, uh, in terms of knowing when something is cooked, knowing when to add something, all of these things are already encoded in practical heuristic knowledge. Except that uh, my job was to come and say, fine, this is true and it works because of this, right? So part of the problem is that when you have the wrong, when you believe in the wrong reason, uh, then a couple of generations later, it's possible that you might end up distorting it, especially for a lot of people who are gaining this knowledge, not practically from their mother or grandmother, but are like young people living in cities, looking at the internet for knowledge. And then you'll find some YouTube video and that person will say, oh, you, you turn on the pressure cooker and three whistles for rice. And they'll think that somehow that is the right way to do it. Right? And then because you don't understand how the pressure cooker works and therefore you don't know that, well, three whistles is not the right way to think about uh, pressure cooking at all. Right? It should always be one whistle and then the amount of pressure cooking time uh, and so on. So it is just that I think what the idea was to say that science is an ally here, right? That tries and validates a lot of your standard cooking heuristics. And in that process, a small number of these things are going to be uh, pseudoscientific because, you know, they were perhaps uh, heuristics in a different time and context before refrigeration, you know, before uh, the hygienic sort of conditions that we live in today. And people were worried about infections and uh, bacteria and yeast, not so much, but they knew spoilage, you know, could, could cause food poisoning and so on. So a lot of habits that we picked up that are not relevant anymore, especially if you use a refrigerator and so on. So those are the things that we need to kind of call out. And so that, you know, we can say, you know, you don't need to believe in this anymore. Say it's more future oriented in that way. It's correctional. Exactly. Exactly. See, it is really about, I think, you know, Nassim Nicholas Taleb also says something very interesting. Uh, I regularly disagree with him on a lot of things. But one thing he particularly says is that, uh, that, that there is a generation of younger people today uh, who believe it is cooler to believe uh, to some scientific white paper because it has the stamp of science uh, with very poorly verified experiments and very biased sample data. And they think, oh, this is scientific. And they ignore 2,000-year-old tradition of how you do something. Uh, it says that you're, you're actually losing out on human knowledge, right? And he and, and cooking particularly for, is, is very true in that our, your mother's or your grandmother's knowledge of cooking is not just her own. It is an unbroken chain of knowledge that has been practically handed over, you know, ever since, you know, human beings uh, started cooking, right? And because women did not have access to literacy and the ability to write it down, all of this is just tacit, orally passed on knowledge. But uh, it is not knowledge that we can ignore. It is not knowledge that we can simply dismiss. Uh, it is knowledge that you need to explain with science so that it is possible for the next generation to learn it without necessarily directly only learning it orally from their, you know, mothers and so on. So that's the, that's the goal of the book. Yeah, and, and the fact that, you know, you mentioned that clay pots, um, you know, because a lot of uh, people in the villages, especially, right, so we all um, live in cities, but we do uh, visit our native towns, uh, you know, if you can call them that, and, and people often, I would say, overrate, uh, you know, cooking in clay pots, because it's always, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it sounds like something that's natural, right? So when you mentioned that it's pseudoscience, it was, I, I just, for yeah. a moment, you know, I just froze and I said, oh, okay, so, you know, we need to rethink the things that, that are just, you know, passed on. The most actually one of the most disingenuous terms in food is the word natural. It has no meaning. <laughs> yeah. It has absolutely no meaning. Right. Okay. What is what is is baking soda natural? Right. If baking soda is not natural, how come sodium chloride is natural? Right. Do we use salt, of course, right? Uh, 
uh, and and you to say that some things are chemicals and other things are not chemicals all of this is like i think you know sometimes uh, the problem is that in the past we didn't understand these and now what they're actually attempting to do is to use the language of the past to try and understand uh, knowledge that we've only gained in the last 2 to 300 years is is really not good work i think you know people need to upgrade their vocabulary if you will what it made me think about um krish is you know uh, your book has been out uh, for some time so i wanted to know what kind of feedback you have received um you know after your book has been out and and how do these external things really um influence the way you um you know taste your writing uh so for example awards or even this podcast that you're doing how do these external things really filter into the way um you uh, see your writing so it, it very much so i you know i i would be lying if i say that if i i, I don't care about uh, you know external validation and so on um absolutely i do pay attention to it but of course i i kind of filter it into the the constructive ones and the and the ones that are not very constructive and, you know living in a social media world uh, you also have to sort of develop a thick skin for certain kinds of criticism that is just not you know not practical it's like you know youtube comments and the occasional amazon review but they've largely been positive in that sense right uh, so the things that have constantly surprised me uh, one is the is the fact that while my my original target when i first set out to write was to say well let me write for fellow techie nerds and so on right you people who appreciate science like reading popular science and so on uh, because you know for the first decision we thought is that will target this book not at the food uh, bookshelf uh, but at the the popular science section of of a bookstore of course the whole thing became moot because of the pandemic and nobody was going into a bookstore uh, and on amazon these categories don't matter in any sense because a book can be part of multiple categories so it ended up being part of both food entertainment food lodging as well as you know science if you will science and technology so uh, that aside uh, i think the some of the interesting things that we discovered along the way uh was one um, that uh, my 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 copy editors managed to somehow slowly sort of over a lot of a few rounds of rewriting uh to to make the book accessible to a wider audience if you will right uh, and so particularly i think uh, uh, i think some of the early feedback uh, interesting critical feedback i received from some of my women friends was you know you know, don't don't try and turn this entire thing into a dilettante or oh, here's a scientist approach to the kitchen sort of thing because you know for most women cooking is a chore that they hate doing that they have no choice and they have to just feed the family they just want to save time if possible they want a robot that can just take care of cleaning and prepping and it's all of that stuff that takes a lot of time uh, and so don't turn this into a celebration of all the other fancy don't make life you know harder for people more than you need to and so that actually gave me the initial set of ideas to also talk about things that can save you time things that can uh, uh, make your kitchen workflow a lot more efficient you know these you know base gravies and many of those ideas chutney algorithms and so on just to make life easier if you will to stop you thinking worrying about what you need to cook and so on uh, the second uh, sort of kind of category of uh, feedback was essentially around the sales feedback which 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 we found that a lot of people in the food industry were buying it okay, so we found that uh, chefs were gifting it to uh, other people saying that hey by the way you should read this book uh, you know especially chefs would tell me that people would ask me how i do this and i'm often not able to explain i know how to do it but i don't i can't explain because i don't know why it works uh, and this book gave me the language to explain uh, exactly how i make this dal taste better uh, than the average person and so on and so there a lot of uh, chefs and people in the food industry have been gifting uh, this book if you will but i think obviously i think the uh, the uh, the other uh, to, to on a negative note i think some of the other but i this is something that i kind of you know uh, predicted in the and i wrote it in the introduction it's saying that this represents a very narrow slice of indian cooking i know science of indian cooking is a very general term and cooking is such a spectacularly diverse thing in india and it cuts across uh, caste community religious uh, and linguistic and regional barriers and so many variations and also a tremendous amount of vari- variety across the class barrier particularly right you know how people might cook in a village how people might uh, cook food uh, when they don't have resources uh, what kind of ingredients they might use and so on all of this and, and and no single book can truly capture all of those things so i i make it clear that look this is a book for middle class people who are reasonably well off probably in the top 5% of you know the the economic uh, uh, sort of a uh, uh, spectrum in india and it's a book for them to really uh, appreciate and enjoy the science of this uh, and use all of these gadgets uh, in in ways uh, that can make their cooking more interesting if you right and it not doesn't really make a claim to be representative of all indian cooking but i like that you know you're very upfront about who your audience is and even the feedback that you got from your women friends i i i also i've grown to realize that uh, a significant chunk of the popularity of the book comes from the novelty of the fact that it's a guy writing about cooking 
Uh, and in India, people don't see that as something that men do, except in a professional setting. Right? So all the books you see will be like chefs uh, writing, etc. Right? Uh, but all the books about home cooking tends to be tend to be written by uh, women, uh, uh, and even on YouTube, you see a lot of that. Right? Absolutely. Okay, so now we want to move to our reading recommendation section of this podcast. So the first question is, what are some recommendations of books that explore food scrumptiously? Uh, so, um, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by Samin Nosrat. Uh, and then um, in the context of Indian cooking, uh, is not an easy read, but I would uh, encourage people to take up uh, the historical, uh, I think the Historical Dictionary of Indian Food by K.T. Acharya. Uh, sometimes not an easy book to find, but uh, it is the most well-researched uh, book on uh, history of particularly Indian food and so on. Any book on food by Lizzie Collingham, she particularly writes about the impact of colonialism uh, on Indian food. And I, most people don't realize colonialism changed what we define to be Indian food more than anything our ancestors did. Literally, almost everything we eat today, we were not eating 200 years ago. Everything from chilies to potatoes to beans to carrot to capsicum to literally carrots to you know all of that. All of these are ingredients that were introduced uh, by colonialists, by the Portuguese and, and the British and so on. And Lizzie Collingham is a, is a fantastically engaging uh, writer. Uh, as well. And for the ones who are like dead serious about food science and all that, I think On Food and Cooking by Harold Peggy. Okay, it's, it's uh, I think it's some 2000 pages long and it's more, really more of a textbook, but uh, but he's such a beautiful writer that you could just randomly open up a page um, and it's some of the most accessible uh, science writing, if you will, but it does read like a textbook. Wow, there's so much to read in there. I mean, 2000 pages, I can't even, uh, you know, imagine getting through that. Um... Krish, what do you read for fun? So uh, for me, that would be, I think, uh, uh, typically a science fiction, right? Science fiction and fantasy is uh, is usually my epic science fiction and fantasy, right? So I usually have a couple of these series which essentially have unlimited universes and there'll be like 20 books in the series. So I just randomly, you know, pick one up. And uh, I, I mean, they still have to be read in sequence, So, that, but I have enough of them that I just pick up one in a sequence that I've, you know, paused at some point of time and then just start reading. So that's usually what uh, I enjoy the most. Great. Okay, so now the last section, which is we want to explore a few misconceptions. I know that we've already done this in this conversation, but we want to take some things from the book and and explore those. Um, So the first one that I want to ask you about is your book explains the science behind most common appliances, right? The fridge, the microwave, um, and microwaves are ever present uh, in our kitchens I use we all use them so so much I didn't know that microwaves realign water molecules in food uh, um, so you know what would you advise to people who want to avoid using a microwave altogether you know is it as risky as you know the people say it is you should you actually people should people need to use the microwave more I think microwave is one of the under most underutilized devices in the Indian kitchen because of the pseudoscience that somehow people think it's some kind of radiation and all of that. Right? Microwave uh, microwave radiation has less energy than visible light. Okay? <laughs> so your, your day-to-day outside sunlight has more energy uh, than microwaves do. Right Now, it's just that microwaves have a very specific frequency. Uh, inside a closed chamber, when, when the direction is constantly flipped, they have the property of heating water in, inside ingredients. And because they cook food by heating the water inside food, uh, it's actually some of the most efficient way to heat anything, right? In in that you're likely to have the least amount of nutrient loss when you use a microwave to steam your vegetables. Oh, you have no idea how much better I feel right now because I've always doubted uh, myself because, you know, I'm like over-reliant on the microwave. Um, and so yeah, it really, really makes me feel much better. Um, so, the, so the next question is about, I think, something that I have encountered most of the time, right? So your book acknowledges that we Indians use two types of wheat, right? Which is maida and atta. And that maida is much maligned. You have um, acknowledged that. And I've, and I've heard so much about it, like obviously, you know, negative things about it. But I want to know how true is it? What should we really know about maida that we don't already know? See, I think, you know, people uh, see the, the, the problem, as I said, the problem with somehow making these generic nutritional rules is that it fails to recognize exactly what maida is. Maida is, again, just wheat flour uh, made from just the starchy part of the wheat, right? So a wheat grain has a howta husk, it has that bran, um, it has the starchy part, and then it has the germ, which is sort of like the baby, the baby wheat plant, if you will, uh, 
uh, the next generation bead plant, then, then embryo, right? So that's the that's at the center, right? Now, uh, normally, and think about why we have these multiple kinds of flows. If you grind the entire wheat grain down, um, it's going to have a lot of fiber. It's going to have a lot of protein. It's also going to have lots of fat because the germ and some of the bran, all of that have fat. That's where you get rice bran oil and all those other things you know, from all of these grains, right? Uh, and some of these things are, do not have a long shelf life. So they will spoil. Uh, so you, if, if you want a floor from which you can make bread, that's how you know wheat floor was invented. You want to be able to discard the bits that you don't want. Of course, it's not wasted. Of course, they would still turn that into fodder for animals and cows and you know sheep and so on. But uh, if you wanted to make bread, you just want the starch and the protein that's there in the in the endosperm, and that's where maida comes from, right? And with increasing time, people people have figured out that can I add a little bit more of the bread? So that I get a little bit more fiber, uh, so that I get a little bit more vitamins, uh, and so on. That's how uh, various uh, uh, whole wheat floors uh, were born, and so on. In in the context of India, particularly, uh, the problem is that wheat tends to have different amounts of protein depending on whether it is grown in summer or winter. Okay, so winter harvested wheat tends to have more protein. That means more gluten. The gluten proteins are the ones that are found in wheat, right? Uh, and so what happens is that winter wheat uh, is great for making the kind of you know bread where you put yeast and you make it rice because it has a lot of protein and it has that structure and the ability to rise, right? Uh, so it's great for the Western swamp. But in India, that's not what we use for because we don't use leavening agents. So we tend to make flatbreads like chapatis. So the problem would is that in the past, you would use winter wheat and your chapatis would turn out to be just super chewy, right? It's like if you make chapati with maida, it turns out to be ultra chewy. Okay, And so the solution to that was to grind the wheat in a way uh, that damages a fair bit of the gluten and also cooks some of the starch. And so the and therefore adds a little bit of the wheat bran so that it's likely more fibrous as well to produce a very custom designed Indian flour called atta, which is not found in the other parts of the world. And atta, by the way, is not suitable for making bread of any kind. Because it's damaged gluten, it won't rise well. So any bread you make will be very, very dense, right? So that's why it's you have to understand that these are two things for two separate purposes. So if you're making naan, if you're making anything that needs to rise, uh, like a bread or a cake or something, you need to use maida, right? Uh, but atta is suitable for flat breads like parathas and chapatis and so on. So that's the primary reason. Now, obviously, in a diet where you're eating it two to three times a day, you want to eat more atta simply because it has more fiber, uh, whereas this is just pure starch and nothing else. You get, you really get no other nutrition, none of the vitamins and so on, right? So if you're eating maida three times a day, then that's not a healthy thing. It's as, it's as bad as eating rice three times a day, right? Polished white rice and so on. So again, the idea is always to think in terms of diversity, right? So if you're eating naan, if you're eating naan made of maida one day, eat chapati the other day, and then you'll be fine. So, but to say that, no, 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 even the slightest amount of maida is not good for my diet is completely pointless. These are not two different things. They're just, you know, two sides of the same coin. Yeah, no, that's a lot of food for thought, actually. Like, it's, it's good to alternate than, than have too much of something, right? Okay, so that brings us to the last round, uh, the last section of our uh, podcast, which is the rapid fire round. It's the most fun round. Um, so you get to answer in one word or one line. So whatever comes at the top of your head, okay? So the first one is gravy or sizzlers? Uh, sizzlers. Microwave oven or stove? Uh, well, uh, stuff. Uh, more, more versatile. Yeah. Fried or smoked? Ah, uh, hot choice. Actually, I'll I'll go with fried. It's more more uh, more versatile. Your favorite cuisine? Uh, Mexican. Seafood or meat? Ah, uh, seafood. Where do you write? I write uh, in my. On this custom-built desk in my room and typically use uh, Scrivener as the tool. Fizzy or fluffy? Fizzy or fluffy. I'll go with uh, fluffy. Crackle or sizzle? Uh, sizzle. Okay, so what's next? <laughs> not really not decided yet. Uh, so I think, you know, I've been um, wanting to sort of want us to take all the additional stuff that I had uh, researched for the book and to build, if you will, a universe of knowledge around the book itself. Obviously, there are many things that I had to leave out in the context of the book. And so that's essentially where my the column that I write uh, bi-weekly for Mint is also called Masala Lab. And that's essentially to expand on the things that I was not able to cover in detail in the book, if you will. Uh, so, And it also offers me the opportunity to do color illustrations, which again, you know, uh, books work best with sort of black and white illustrations and so on. Um, 
And uh, so that's what I'm doing right now. Um, and then also sort of getting more into being able to explain stuff via video. So I do a series of these uh, science explainer videos on on Instagram on science of fermentation and really just to dig deep into some of these things and also show and tell in a more practical sense as well. But um, in the about uh, any subsequent books, honestly, I really haven't decided. So right now still sort of uh, uh, in, in the break between two books, if you will. So I've not really decided. No, that's great. That's a lot that you have going on. So I have one last question for you. Alcohol or water? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'll go with water because I think it's far more essential. uh, And you can always make alcohol with yeast and sugars anytime you want. Nice. (laughs) That's a a very safe (laughs) answer. Thank you so much. It was really, really fun. One of our most unique episodes. Yeah, really different actually. Thank you. Good fun. Gosh, I wanted to keep asking him questions, Tara, because there are so many myths around food and cooking, right? But we only have so much time. Yes, but I do hope that all the writers who are listening and the foodies are figured out a little bit more about how science affects food and also how to approach food writing through the conversation. As I mentioned earlier in the intro, if you are interested in being a part of a community of like-minded people, please do join our WhatsApp groups. We have a lot of fun conversations in the group. So we have one group for writers and readers and we have another group for podcast lovers, podcast creators. So whether you're a creator or you're a reader, uh, you'll, you'll have a lot of fun and the links are in the show notes. Tara, I'm actually really impatient about our next episode. Yeah, I know, I know. We'll be speaking to Meera Sethi on our next episode. Um, she is the author of a book of debut short stories called Are You Enjoying? Um, which is about young urban Pakistani people's lives today. And I know, Michelle, you were a big fan and you actually ended up highlighting a lot of lines in the book <laughs> which we're going to talk about. Yes, yes. And I would urge all our listeners to read her book because it is, you know, absolutely one of a kind. And yes, please follow us for creative content. We are at Bound India on all social media platforms. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next Wednesday with Meera Sethi.